Welcome back for a very special episode of This Film Not Rated. I'm Eric. I'm Curtis. And we're here to talk about films we watched this week. But I am very happy to announce that we finally have a listener. Or two. <laughs> uh, at the very least. And we got some positive feedback. And I'm really excited to be able to introduce a little bit more structure to the show. So I want listeners to know uh, that I'll be having an introduction as we go to make sure people remember that there is the reason that we talk here is to try and avoid... A lot of opinions being put off as facts when we talk about movies. Um, so what we do in past episodes, you'll notice, is occasionally buzz mm-hmm. one another after we've said something like we like something or we don't like something. So uh, what I wanted to clarify for listeners so far and for what will be going on throughout from this point forward, from this numbered episode forward, which would be seven. Okay. Is that you can win or lose with our show. That's our twist. Mm-hmm. The winner is anyone who is not the loser. The loser is the person with the most points. You can earn a point two ways. By A, mm-hmm. claiming your opinion is fact, turning the subjective into the objective. These are the kind of comments like, Infinity War is the best Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. You right. know, like... If I were to say Infinity War is my favorite Avengers movie, this is where we come into option B. Okay. Uh, at which point I can earn a point or I can take a minute or so to justify my subjective opinion with some observations, objective observations about the movie that inform that opinion. Okay. Okay. So, we're not just going to be cutting off, you know, Curtis, uh, an answer that I know you've been dying to ask without there being so much tension behind it. How are you doing today? <laughs> uh, how am I doing today? I have been doing fairly well today. And for once, I'm not going to buzz Curtis for saying how he's going to do, because that's the kind of thing. So, we will talk, uh, you know, about movies that we like, about movies that we don't like, and we will not just be shutting off anytime someone wants to say they like or don't like a movie. Uh, but the point of this podcast is to f- kind of push for conversation to be more I mean, critical. Yeah, critical thinking. Yes. Uh, but not to the point of homework. Um, <laughs> so watched some movies this week uh i know we watched the exorcist 3 and i know that we watched they live john carpenter's they live we did do those things what else did you watch this week curtis uh the two big ones i watched this week were uh the ballad of nariyama directed by uh, kisuke Tenoshita, and i watched what was the other one uh the blob by chuck russell 1988 the 1980s remake of the blob it is so why don't we start with the one that we're the most excited to talk about so this podcast gets worse as we go along. Okay. Uh, I mean, out of the ones... They live. Yeah, they live. That's what I was going to say. So, uh, John Carpenter's They Live was like, eh, this is a later 80s movie. I, I want to say like 88. The premise is uh, basically a bunch of aliens have invaded Earth and they're slowly taking over the human race and the main character played by... Uh, Roddy Piper finds a Rowdy pair of, Roddy Piper finds a pair of glasses that allows him to see not only the aliens but everything they've done to uh, mass control the population of the earth and uh, him and a few others decide to get rid of them the uh, whole premise itself uh, 
almost sounds like a uh, it sounds like a hokey fifties sci fi movie, and I know that hokey is a qualifier, but uh, so when you say hokey, this is an opportunity for you to earn a point, which yep. would put you towards losing. Yes, or you can justify it. What I feel like you're trying to say is referencing the sort of uh, B movie aesthetic of fifties sci fi creature features and things like that. Uh, so I'll give you a piece of objective information that could justify what you're saying. Okay. This movie is post-Star Wars. Yes. That came out in 77. Mm-hmm. This is 88. I'm not sure how much of a budget they had, but they did take the time to... Uh, there's a robot that is comes down to track Rowdy Roddy Piper's location, mm-hmm. and when everything is black and white, it, everything is grayscaled and, and looks... Basically, whenever he's wearing the glasses, the uh, screen goes specifically to black and white, which gives it kind of that old-time feel. Which, Like that B-movie aesthetic, the way that they did the special effects for that robot was claymation. Yeah. Instead of uh, anything that they would have done in any production with special effects like that since then. Like yeah. uh, layering in uh, special effects objects... Any kind of lasering camera. It could have just been a robot floating on a string. Could have been. But they went out of their yeah. way to make the aesthetic kind of... So when you say hokey, you're referring to that era of 50s. And it, there is some objective sense that they're trying to do that. Right. And then um, the person that Rowdy Roddy Piper is along for the ride for throughout the majority of the movie is Keith David. And they have one spectacularly long fight scene in which uh Rowdy Roddy Piper is trying to get Keith David to wear the glasses so he can see what he sees and Keith David is just wants none of it. He's doing everything he can to not be involved because that's his entire character. He's his whole mindset throughout the movie is I mind my own business and people mind theirs. They don't bother me, I don't bother them. That's his whole stance until Roddy Piper gets him to wear the glasses. Which I feel like is a lot of the way that we sort of live. As long as a problem doesn't affect us, we don't have to do it. I feel like that was a lot of what I would hear arguments for um, for not voting prior to, like, the these later 2010s elections. Mm-hmm. Um, would be people saying, uh, doesn't matter who's in charge, you know, my paycheck, my day-to-day life doesn't change all that much. Okay. People who don't understand, like, the influence it has on their lives. It's kind of funny. You see the guy saying, like, if I keep my head down, I'll be able to earn a living and I'll be able to get by just fine. And... On the one hand, I have to admit I was rooting for Keith David. I I love the concept of a call to adventure being refused for 15 bloody fist-pounding, alley-back-scratching, splashing, muddy, dirty, pavement-pounding minutes of them just beating the crap out of each other just to ultimately be along for the ride. Yeah. (laughs) There's <laughs> something, uh, and uh, and there and like within that fight scene itself, like we've noticed this, there are several moments where it feels like the fight is starting to wind down, and then it just continues. Yes, completely. Basically, for anyone who's ever cheered in the movie, like not through that, we'd be out of there. For every haunted house that you would have just left, for every, yeah. you know, this is one guy who's like abs- fighting the fight that the viewer would fight to not have to be along mm-hmm. for the movie. Yeah. And actually, you know what this movie reminds me a lot of? Reminds me a lot of The Matrix. Reminds me a lot of Big Trouble in Little China. I mean that too, but with The Matrix you have 
uh, Neo being awoken to the world as it really is, living via computer simulation. And once awoken, he joins a group of people dedicated to freeing the world. And that is essentially what uh, this movie is. Uh, you have... You, you, you... So it's like if, if, if a, there were a lot of ciphers. <laughs> Cypher, the character from The Matrix, is the one who wants to be plugged back into the Matrix and agrees to help the machines in exchange for wealth and fame. Yes. That's if, if like, most people who are actually aware of the aliens were Cypher. Yeah. That's... It's a cult classic, but the nature of being a cult classic means not a lot of people probably haven't seen it yet. So, I mean, the aliens themselves are kind of freaky looking. Like, like... <laughs> I don't know, it's a... I don't know how to put it. It, it looks like they're they're like it, it. I think it's obvious that that they're just like wearing like silicone costumes and masks. And it just I don't even know if it's silicone. I looked at someone. I thought they were wearing gloves. It turned out to be the makeup that they did yeah. on whatever they have on their hands. Yeah. Uh, the, the designs themselves. It's kind of like the skin has been peeled away, and it gives this uh like off settling feeling throughout the entire thing, and it gives plenty of uh, comedic dialogue to uh piper's character the fun thing about this to me and the reason why i think of big trouble in little china is the same level of careless charm over insane imagination Mm -hmm. uh which when i say careless i mean like they design these characters look like their faces were ripped off but you can tell people have lips underneath of their teeth yeah talking yeah it's and they they don't bother to try and make it look like they have tongues that are moving they just they just put a surface level of makeup on and it's just enough to be what it is without being overly intricate about it yeah and so it's careless but at the same time the way that the movie either is paced or the way that the characters interact Mm -hmm. it's like the main character treats it as disposable and real. Yeah. The way that he just brushes them to the side, the way that he's immediately ready to just, like, start shooting. <laughs> and so you sort of... it. You're thinking it doesn't matter. He's thinking it doesn't matter. Yeah. There's a thing there. Yeah. And then with Big Trouble in Little China and with this, just... I, I, I can't tell where they're pulling it from. We've watched a lot of movies, but I can't tell you where the idea for the skin aliens to just look like humans, but without skin and with these weird eyeballs. And I can't tell you where half of the ideas from Big Trouble in Little China come from. No, I have an idea about why the design of the aliens is just like humans with skin peeled off, which is about as superficial as as everything else within the movie that we've gone over. Signs are literally telling you what to do. Money is literally... Your God, so I think the aliens being just human with the skin peeled away is just like the slow erosion of humanity throughout the entire movie. That's kind of maybe what I- human, but not human. Yeah. Um. I don't. I, I as soon as you said that, what kind of popped into my head was maybe um when the one of the conspiracy theorists say that climate change were the aliens terraforming the Earth to be like their planet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was. It's like a simple explanation for something we see. Uh, what if these bodies are also unfamiliar to the aliens since they're wearing wigs and human clothes and whatnot? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like they got the bare bones metaphysical structure of muscle down for humans and they're like, that's all we need. Okay. 
Yeah, it could be that. So maybe they don't necessarily always live in those bodies on Earth. They might, on on their planet, they might look like something mm. else. So you're saying, despite what we've seen in the movie, we actually haven't seen their true forms yet. It's just... Well, in the same way that human beings have some sentience about them or some sort of soul. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about this also in The Exorcist 3. Yeah. Like, you know, being able to inhabit different shells. Yeah. So, yes, I do think we do have seen them. Okay. But I also think that it just might you yeah know, who knows this none of this stuff is really like followed yeah. up on or whatever and, and then okay. and then like then there's the ending which uh, i i think would be best to not spoil but oh. let's just uh i, I well, think that's it's... why you can't really talk about it because you can't on this one we can't just say oh the ending's the best or oh the ending was the worst and just cut out we can't I just think say the best that. way to say it though is that by the end of it everyone is awake I think that's the best way to say it. I would like to believe by the end of it, everyone's awake. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about with uh, They Live? Uh, Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper. Uh, Rest in peace. I was looking up this character having so many one-liners, some of which have become iconic to the point of being satired and repeated throughout other pop culture until people lose track of the source of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh... So they live in that popular, but I'm all out of bubble gum. Yeah. You know, that's referenced in the IT crowd. That's referenced in everything. Like countless things. But not like, so the number of people who know that line would greatly outnumber the people who've seen this movie. Yes. Cause I, I was one of them until today. So I was looking up, uh, where did the punchy one liner thing like, uh, the quality of this movie come from? Was it in the script? Was it ad-libbed? Was it whatever? And uh, it was pointed out to me through an article that when you compare this character to Kurt Russell's uh, Snake Plissken or uh, his lead character from Big Trouble in Little China, you'll find that John Carpenter has this sort of gravitation towards a main character who is built bigger and tougher yeah. than many other 80s badasses yeah and quote unquote. Uh, it's completely possible that john carpenter uh wrote those one-liners and they just happened to be delivered so sincerely mm-hmm. by roddy piper that i would believe that he ad-libbed them uh and then there are other characters who drop some one-liners that lead me to believe that it was in the script but I'll just say, if Kurt Russell were in this role, Mm -hmm. it would not be the same movie. And I know that's saying something at face value, but I really think part of what makes this movie unique and will make somebody either really like or dislike the movie is that that actor himself playing that role. Okay. big movie that I saw this week that you've seen before, my first time seeing it, uh, The Blob 1988. Oh, Direct- so we go from uh, 80s to 80s. Why not? Yeah. Uh, directed by Chuck Russell and written, uh, co-written by uh, Frank Darabont. So, They Live is an 80s movie that sort of pays tribute to 1950s movies. Yes. The Blob is an 80s movie that... Is a remake of a 50s movie. Yeah, but uh, there are specific key scenes that were saved from the 1950s, the blob, and brought over to the 80s one and made modernized. Uh, the three big ones that I that I can think of off the top of my head, you have the intro of the blob crashing down to Earth with the old man. 
you have the uh, freezer scene where you first learn that the blob doesn't like the cold. And there's another one. The doctor scene, right? I was about like those are three big scenes that well, were second victim, second victim. Like I, this has been pump, um, uh, pointed out before, but one of the first things that I think of whenever I watch this movie is uh, is the opening is very similar to that of Day of the Dead, where you have these these long shots of an empty town square, just low music, just for ambience, and it ends on a graveyard that slowly pans over to a football game in, in progress and as the and, and as the pan is going over while the graveyard is still in sight the people in the stands start to cheer and i always interpret that as people cheering for death hmm. we've brought up a couple of movies before mm-hmm. along this vein notably we have not talked about the 1980s thing mm-hmm. um but practical effects, makeup effects, gore effects, the 1980s. We brought that up before. Yes. And this is a sort of an aquarium. Yeah, that's uh, for that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it, it's it's what a lot oh, of people would call variety. Yes, it's it's whatever it's it's what a lot of people would call an, an every trick in the book style a style of movie. There is, uh, I don't know if there's claymation in this one, so that might be the only thing that's not there. But there is. There is puppetry. There is there. There are composite shots. There's force perspective. There's a whole bunch of tricks used to like ground everything into this. And because basically that's the question that they had to answer. Like, how do you make just a random goop blob scary? Yeah. And in this one, it's just it's it's an indiscriminate thing that eats whatever it can get its hands on. Uh, one of the one of the funnier kills in in the movie, and I can justify this is. A very cartoonish death where a guy is literally dragged and pulled into a drain, and the drain expands as the guy is being sucked down in cartoonish fashion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a one of the deaths that really stands out to me. It's, it's like one of the most uh, ridiculous things in, in, in the movie, but it's great. Go ahead and you can bust me for that. Uh, remember that the, the theater scene in the original The Blob? Oh, yeah. You don't really see anything in that scene. It's just the blob comes out and then people start running away. Mm-hmm. In the theater scene with this one, the first thing that they set up early on is that when the kids are there, there's this, uh, and this is brought up in, in, in the Red Letter Media review as well. And like, so like, but before I go on, a lot of things, I, I watched the Red Letter Media review before I watched this, this movie. So a lot of things that they mentioned, I was already primed to pay attention for. Mm. Uh, but there's, they mentioned this one little scene where in the theater where the kids are, there's this, uh, jackass of a guy behind them that's talking and ruining the, the movie experience. And he's <laughs> the first one to get to, to, uh, get, uh, pulled up and killed by the blob in the actual theater. I'm, I'm not talking about right. the, the, it's a very cathartic moment for anyone who hates that kind of person. But what they didn't mention, and this is something that, was the first thing that I thought of when uh, the girl went to went to go to the theater to to uh, save the two boys is that scene is seizure inducing. There is a moment where there's a a flashing strobe light that goes on for something like five minutes throughout the entire th- throughout the, the throughout the entire scene. If you're and if you're watching that in a dark theater, that can cause a seizure. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, then another thing that they brought up in the Red Letter Media thing, there's a lot of setup and payoffs with this. Like, there's there's obviously the uh, motorcycle 
jumping scene that's set up at the very beginning where he fails and then during the chase scene. Yeah, that's sort of how more characters than you would expect in a sort of like ensemble yeah. crowd movie yeah. to have arcs. Yes. It's through like simple setups and payoffs that are visual. Yeah. The person who was set up as the main character in this movie turns out to not be the main character, the main the main guy. Uh, Paul. It's G. How. Uh, this, this movie's Paul is set up to be the, is set up to be the, uh, the 80s version of Steve McQueen's character in the 1950s, The Blob, but he dies very early on during the hospital scene and is soon replaced by, uh, what's his name? Kevin Dillon. Kevin Dillon's character, uh, constantly referred to throughout the entire movie as Slag, is set up as this kind of punk Han Solo-ish type character. And they actually do a really good job setting up his character where some one of the first scenes you see in the they movie... They do a good job setting up his character? Yeah. One, we'll, ju- we'll justify it. One of the first scenes you see in the movie uh, after he's just totaled his spike is he's... Uh, he's first he's, of all, he takes the fall. When he's back in town and he's crossing and he's walking down the street, he looks behind him and he sees the sheriff in town. And as soon as he sees him, he walks across the street. Instantly, you get the impression that he's had a few run-ins with the law. This is later confirmed in that same scene with the sheriff having a conversation with him about, hey, you're 18 now. You better not screw up again, else you're going to the big leaks. It's quick characterization that you get on visual cues and you don't need that dialogue for it, but they put it in just in case. Mm-hmm. And it's you see that throughout the entirety of the movie. The cheerleader character, played by Shawnee Smith, who starts off as your damsel in distress... And as the movie goes on, she chose to be more and more independent and uh, self-thinking. She's never quite been credited as a Scream Queen, but, uh, you know, she's the assistant in Saw, who had the reverse bear trap put on her. Um, And then, and uh, she's been in a few other horror movies, and she was all through the series Becker. Mm. So I've been weirdly familiar with Shawnee Smith. For like, I don't know if any of you out there are the same way where you're just like, why do I have so much familiarity with this actor? But this is that case of that feeling to me. My impression of the blob is a lot of people bring up 1980s The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, as the sort of go-to creature feature um, or the end-all be-all creature feature. And I understand why people feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like people to not forget that the blob exists and to be able to appreciate, uh, some of the creativity that had to be there behind the, the practical work that they did. Just to have the mind and the imagination to depict some of the, uh, as you pointed out, like the gore in the theater. Yeah. And, uh, the different consistencies chosen so that you can see the sort of dissolving humans within the blob so that it doesn't feel like just a big, imposing, steadily moving gel. It feels like you can see the threat in it. Yes. As it is coming at you. And there's, so it functions in different yeah. ways. Like it's, it is really hard to make such a cheesy idea scary. And in the 1980s, I think a lot of times, People don't think of 80s movies as scary anymore. They think of them as fun. Mm -hmm. And yet there's just something creepy to seeing that, I don't know, you know. Yeah, it's a, I mean, the blob as a monster is basically an overgrown amoeba attacking humans. 
Okay, so um, why don't you tell us about the movie that you saw? So the other movie that I saw is The Ballad of Narayama, which is a uh, Japanese film directed by uh, Kisuke Kinoshita. The whole movie centers around the theme of the abandonment of, of the old people. That's the uh, premise of it. And full disclosure, uh, I have the Criterion version for this, and I read the uh, pamphlet before I watched the movie. Uh, one of the first things that the uh, movie does is it opens up as a uh, as a kabuki play, a traditional Japanese play, where the person who is announcing the play is clad in all black, and he's clapping two white oak blocks together, and he goes over what you're about to see. And throughout the entirety of the movie, that announcer is giving narration as things play out as well. But uh, it's not just his narration. The actors, of course, have their own lines, and and uh, you get to see stuff through that. And the whole movie is staged as a play. Uh, the, it is. It, so it is staged and directed like a play? It is staged and directed like a play. Uh, about 99% of the actual movie is filmed on sets, and the production crew made no effort to hide that it was on set. It's wow. intentionally made to look like play all the way up into the very end where the vast majority of the movie is in, in color. At the end, it fades to black and white and modern day. And at that point, it's being shot on location. And it's only for like a couple of seconds of the movie. The um, Ballad of uh, Narayama describes a old Japanese uh, folktale where you have this uh, isolated village, short on food, has this tradition where on the person's 70th birthday, the male child of the family has to escort their uh, elder to Mount Narayama and leave them for dead. It's a tradition that has gone on for generations. And for our main character, uh, Orin, I think her name is, is a sacred ritual. And everything about the movie is uh, you see how this tradition has affected the uh, villagers where they no longer care about uh, the traditional customs of showing respect for your elders. And the village has uh, given way to greed and uh, apathy, where the faster they can get rid of someone, the better. And this is exemplified in Orin's grandson, who has taken on the village mindset and is pushing his grandmother to take her journey early, just so there's more food for him. So he represents the village mindset, and then you have the son, who... It, in my opinion, represents the force that is kind of questioning what's going on, but who does eventually give in because he is respecting his uh, mother's wish to go through with his sacred ritual. Maureen, the old person who has accepted her fate, is the protagonist of the uh, movie, but the person that you're meant to relate to is the son. Because you can tell that uh, he doesn't want to do this. You you can tell he's struggling with it. He's trying everything he can to push it aside. It, it's a task that he doesn't want to deal with. One of the uh, emotionally connective scenes in the movie is where the son is taking his mother up to Mount Narayama. And throughout this whole thing, she's not allowed to talk. Uh, it's implied that, as, that she can talk before she gets to Mount Narayama during the journey. But She's so strict in sticking to tradition that she won't talk. And the son throughout the entire journey is trying to get her to say something, anything, so he can talk to his mom one last time before he has to leave her. And so I, I guess the big thing with uh, Bout of uh, Narayama is this uh, Orin in her steadfast acceptance of her fate. And it's directly contrasted with uh, this old man who should have gone up the mountain a year ago. But is constantly trying to, to fight it to the point where his family has stopped feeding him. So he's going to Orin's place to uh, get food 
Would it be fair to say the Ballad of Mariana is Eastern storytelling in the sense that all of the characters serve the purpose? Well, I know that this is Kabuki storytelling, Mm -hmm. that there's an explored theme and the characters are representative of ideas centered around that theme. Yeah. Versus Western storytelling where you have like a fleshed out character in a life and people might have mixed emotions about things. Yeah, that like, yeah, that's that sounds pretty accurate. So it's it's more of a exploration of an idea through characters' choices and actions. Yeah, and going back to, to the whole play thing, like even the scene transitions are treated like plays, like 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 a play. Adjusting transi- the uh, set decorations and moving them around and all that. Exactly. No, like during a scene transition, the lights will go dark. Mm-hmm. Characters will stay still, and everything is moved to either the to right of stage or left of stage, mm-hmm. and it's. And as as they're being moved, the camera pans inward to go to the next scene. Just all that, like just the just the staging is the only time I've ever seen it. Is in uh, like the Broadway production of Sweeney Todd, Demon Barber, Fleet Street, but that but that was literally a film a, a, a stage production. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, and so this is like taking that concept and um, cinemizing it. Cinemizing it. It's that's a canon term heard here. Completely canon in real term that I did coined not term coined <laughs> here first. That's a completely we're cinemizing. <laughs> we're taking some ideas you might have seen and we're cinemizing them. I would like to see the next cinemization of a book. <laughs> um, I'm really looking forward to the adaptation of Doom, cinemized yeah. by Denis Villeneuve. But yeah, like, so if uh, Orin is the person who has accepted her fate, and the majority of her family is meant to represent. The ideal way you're supposed to be treating your your elders, they're direct neighbors. Uh, With the old man who is constantly trying to fight their fate is the opposite of that, where that family is the other side of that, where uh, they're trying to get the old man to go away so they can have more food. And uh, there's... Do you think that this speaks in a way that is universal, or is this specific to the culture that it's depicting? I think it was, at the time, a cultural thing. But as time has gone on, I think it's become more uh, universal. Like, I think in the 50s, this was a Japanese culture thing. I think nowadays, I think the actual... In which, I could be wrong, it could it could be universal. I mean, when I when I watch it, I, I can relate to a lot of things going on, theme-wise. I think I've said all I want to with this one. Okay. So we watched, uh, you know, and, and this is valid. Uh, everything that we've talked to sort of builds up to this. This movie was made in 1990, so <clears throat> was shot in the 80s mm-hmm. off the tail ends of uh, a different kind of tone of genre movie. Um, so it's pretty well known The Exorcist 3 was made as a sort of reaction to the exorcist 2 being made mm-hmm. the writer of the original exorcist book wrote and directed this movie yep um he was involved in the production of the first movie heavily and really so when he came back to do the exorcist 3 he wanted to make it the sequel that the exorcist 2 was not yeah in his eyes and that is on the cover of the disc case. It's on the back <laughs> of the disc case. This is the Exorcist sequel. This is the true Exorcist sequel. Yeah. So, 
we have talked about a death, old age, and mortality, and uh, practical effects, and uh, yep. I feel like this movie is the well, your movie is probably the closest to being an opposite of They Live, uh, the one that you watched. <laughs> but <laughs> in another way, this is this is tonally the opposite of They Live. Yes. Um, up until the end, which. Uh, also watching Red Letter Media's review, we can just kind of go ahead and say, like, a uh, famous thing about the ending of this movie is originally it wasn't there. Uh, there was a different ending. I'm not going to go into too much detail as to why, but it is called The Exorcist. And mm-hmm. towards the end of it, they were saying, hey, you know, you need an exorcism in this thing if you're going to call it The Exorcist. Yeah. And I was like, if you insist. And so they made an ending. Um, yep. at any rate, um, they go to great lengths to make this a follow-up to the first Exorcist. Mm-hmm. And I still have never seen Exorcist 2, so I don't know what I'm missing in between there other than the name Pazuzu. <laughs> I haven't seen anything. I, I know Linda Blair makes a guest appearance in The Exorcist 2 at the very beginning, and from my understanding, she's never seen again throughout the entirety of the movie. Uh, the Exorcist 3 also stars an actor that we are very interested in, who was the star of The Changeling. George C. Scott. George C. Scott. Plays, uh, uh Kenderman. Car- uh, yes, Officer Kenderman. Yep. Who was in the original Exorcist. He was. Just played by a different actor. Yeah. If you look back at the Kinderman in the original Exorcist, uh, George C. Scott has a lot of the same mannerisms and inflections and voice that uh that the original Kinderman had. And there's like a certain cadence to his voice that George C. Scott matches up to. So George C. Scott had to carry the emotional weight of the entirety of the changeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, he I did feel like it is the same thing in this case. You think so? I thought Father Dyer did a pretty good job of carrying some of the weight. They managed to make this a sort of hard fact sequel to the first Exorcist by bringing back the same characters that we were left with, excluding Reagan and her mother, who mm-hmm. pretty much I, when they left that town, it was not their home in the first place. They were there because the mom was an actress shooting a movie. Mm-hmm. And when they left town, you know, they they wouldn't be there anymore. Yeah. But that would still be the event where this presence and this possession and this thing happened. So we're left with the characters that would have been there. Okay. And they're... I'll just go ahead and speak to, I feel like this movie may have been overlooked a lot by people because the direction drove really hard back towards the 70s style of wide frames, long takes, dialogue driven character emotion stuff. Mm-hmm. After the blob and after I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick ass and blow up everything under the sun, you hard cut back to what people would call quote-unquote boring yeah basically anyone who would say the exorcist is boring in reaction to someone saying that it's like the scariest movie of all time or going by that reputation Mm -hmm. would probably also call this movie boring i can see that yeah Uh, like on one of the big differences that this movie has from the original exorcist is uh the original exorcist is played as a family drama where the where the girl gets uh, possessed by a demon. There this... is a procedure element, but you're right. It's more of the mom who's scared for what's happening to her daughter. Right. 
trying to check off boxes on what could be wrong with her. And this one is more of a cold police procedural type of movie. There is a by-the-numbers element to it. Yeah. But it's grounded in, I mean, the the Gemini killer, when I looked it up, the first thing that popped up is based on flat-out the Zodiac killer. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's his own take on that. It, I, I do want to talk about, uh, Brad Dourif in the movie, because he's, he's in it for about... For maybe a total of 15 minutes screen time. Yeah, he's not in it for long, but he leaves a big impact. Uh, <laughs> damn it. How big I, of an impact does he leave, Curtis? Damn it. Either way. I like the sound design that they, uh, took with his voice, where there were times where it, it sounded like his voice had extra bass and, like, and, uh, and uh like gave it a, like a more menacing tone to it and then other times where 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 he's being re- relaxed and it's it's more echoey and so, playful for context mm-hmm. uh the book that this is based on and the title of the director's cut is yeah. legion yes so for anyone familiar with the bible story that is uh briefly reiterated in the movie mm-hmm. you would know why it is very, instead of where it would normally be distracting, sort of captivating that it seems like they looped and re-looped his voice in multiple different distances from a microphone, so that sometimes he may sound like this, and that sometimes he may sound like this, and then sometimes he may sound like this. Yeah. You get the impression of, we are many. Yes. And... It should be distracting, and uh, there are times when it took me my attention away, like with the uh, the the Exorcist. Yeah, Brad Dourif was basically given two or three seven to ten minute monologues. Yeah, and they just shot it and reshot it and reshot it and, and shot it and reshot it and re-recorded it and re-recorded it and re-recorded it, so that they could have the coverage and the detail that they needed in order to pull it off and. It's like this guy can cry on cue, deliver screams, bounce and wave between different emotions. He can, it could be an entire acting reel, each scene that he's in for for him. Like he must have walked away from that movie thinking, if I ever need work again, I've got an example of it here. Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if his uh, role in that movie got him several roles in the future. Just, yeah. He had already been Chucky from Child's Play at this point. The second yeah. one uh, was released the same year, but the first one had already come out, so... Yeah. Then there's the relationship between uh, uh, Kinderman and Father Dyer, where the movie basically picks up where they left off. At the end of Exorcist 1, they're going to see a movie, and at the start of this movie, after the initial uh, opening scene, the very next thing is they're going to see a movie, and it's, it's, it's ironically, it's a wonderful life. They're still coping with the events of the first Exorcist by yeah. doing the same thing, going to see a movie together. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about that. I want to talk about the dialogue. Okay. Uh, I wanted to talk about how when the air at the hospital, and he's with Father Dyer, okay. and the nurse walks into the room, like, is this the right room? Like, I don't know, remember, what did she say? Like, ooh, sorry, ooh, my bad. Like, yeah. something. It's just the most, like, real, someone accidentally walked in and they go, ooh, my bad. You know, yeah. it's just like, who is this extra? I believe that she just accidentally walked onto a film set thinking she works in a real hospital. <laughs> like, it, it was, it was 
it's so real at times. There's a scene, this this scene, um, talking about the carp at home. Yes, and I I will stand by this thing before you say it. I think that Father Dyer was supposed to sit there with a straight face throughout this entire thing, but George C. Scott's delivery is so dry that the actor who plays Father Dyer can't help but laugh throughout the entirety of the scene. I, I think that he was supposed to laugh because I think that was the whole point, was they're enjoying each other's company. Yeah. But I, I do think it was easy. <laughs> um, I was I, I found myself watching Father Dyer more to see him crack up than I was paying attention to the story. Um, yeah. I... And- but it's it's not just that it's it's the willingness to have conversations that feel like you know people aren't always talking about the most important thing happening in their lives yeah. and in movies that's all they do yeah they don't they don't talk and usually writers are driven to take out things that don't punch towards yeah and the point of the story so writers like Quentin Tarantino who managed to pull off casual conversation like the famous quarter pounder with cheese conversation or the conversation uh, about milk in the beginning of Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is that dialogue can pl- play as a different storytelling tool than just delivering information yeah. and moving characters along. Yeah, and that's really present here. It is, and I think that the, the dialogue helps to build that the believability of the genuine relationship between Father Dyer and Kinderman. Uh, like, yeah, but it's also used to round out characters without doing anything with them. Like, uh, the hospital staff or the police staff. Yeah. Um, when he's chewing out someone for being racist earlier in the movie, before you even know the full context of the murder. Right. You know, like you, he, it's this simple bit of dialogue where he points out on this guy's application he screwed up rabies for rabbis because he didn't read carefully enough and accidentally gave a really, like, yeah. inappropriate answer. Yeah. Like, that's completely off top. We don't even understand why he's really chewing out this guy so much. But you, you are, you're immediately aware of what's going on and kind yeah. of he's, sets you up to know yeah. I mean, what it's going to be about. And I, they give you enough information to, to let you piece it together yourself, I think. Like, no, that's kind of the point. It's sort of like, you get the sense that you're seeing enough, if someone was making a documentary about a person's life, they showed mm-hmm. you enough of the important information that you were able to feel what they felt. Yeah. But they showed you a person's life. They showed you his home, family, they showed you yeah. what's going on. You know, yeah, and- if this were shot like a mockumentary, it would be written the exact same way. Yeah. And then, but like going back to the dialogue with, uh, with, uh, Kinderman and Father Dyer, like, Kinderman doesn't hesitate to give that, uh, carpet speech to, uh, Father Dyer, which for him is like a, a stress reliever kind of thing, because he, it's, it's something that he can't talk about at home because it would upset his wife. So he's using Father Dyer to unload that. And then in a later scene, uh, they're having just a casual conversation. It's, it's the scene where, uh, Father Dyer says, you don't want to live forever. You'd get bored. I have hobbies. I have hobbies. Uh, it's another scene where Kinderman is opening up to the more gruesome details about his life and he's sharing it with Father Dyer. And then you get to the hospital scene where Father Dyer mentions his brother and Kinderman already knows where he's going with this. And you get the impression that they've had this conversation before. It, it, yeah. The Western staple of 
the wanderer who falls into a story and then accepts that call to action yeah. or whatever. The your Mad Max mm-hmm. um by circumstance that's Kinderman. Yeah. Because the original trail of bodies being left are tied to this thing that just happens to personally matter to him. Uh in multiple ways. In multiple completely different ways. Because there's this idea of the Gemini killer, and that's related to Kinderman's personal history as a police officer. Mm -hmm. Then there's this exorcism that he was only loosely associated with, but he became personally invested in multiple different people who participated in that event. Mm -hmm. And then you have... So you have his job, and you have his personal life, and... And then by the time he's sort of figured those things out, you have his, like, direct home. Yeah. And so, it's sort of... He almost handles things as if it's his job. Mm. Until every blow that it takes that gets more and more personal. Yeah. Sends him spiraling off towards... Yeah, and, and you can see it taking, like, a, a, a physical toll on him. Like, like I, it, I almost would stretch to call this just a Western that happens to not be set in the desert if it had the original ending. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, like, yeah, like, you can see the toll that it's having on Kinderman. Like, there are, there are scenes where he's, he's on the verge of just breaking down, and it's, it's incredibly vulnerable at, after a certain point in the movie. There's a, a a take of him walking around his friend's body at a crime scene. Mm-hmm. And he's checking for signs to verify a theory he has about the crime scene. Mm-hmm. But then he, he has to eventually pull up a sheet and check his head. And the way that he performs it by just his face pulling tight and he wants to look but he can't look. It's so... Yeah. I'm I'm going to try to watch that scene again. Okay. And try and wrap my head around the fact that what he actually looked down at was nothing, a camera, and a couple of people huddled around the camera looking through an image box, a gate, and a, holding a boom mic and, and staring at all this, kind of like moving and giving him a finger and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Trying to imagine how he can give the emotional reaction he gave mm-hmm. staring at that instead of his how his face telegraphs what is in our brains yeah knows is there yeah yeah was... i want to see everything george c scott has been in he is same same it's like i don't like you know I, like off topic i think the first thing i ever heard his voice in was The Rescuers Down Under. Oh, and there's an old lady in this movie and she pointed out how George C. Scott has such a kind face. So she gets a point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, take that old lady. Yeah. <laughs> you deserve it, you creepy bitch. There's a... Is there... I think... I think I'm done with The Exodus 3. Like... Score like I can't it's think. It's a of tiring week. It is. Overall, there's there's a lot of thought about mortality, the end, and marching towards it. Yep. 
and and just the sheer level of complication in this earth and how every issue has it's a 20-sided die you know yeah and it's it's just been an exhausting week mm. and yet i would recommend all of the movies even the one i haven't seen probably you know mm. i want to watch it so it's it's bizarre and I thank you all listeners for taking this bizarre journey with us. So, if you would like more, you know we're going to be back next week. Um, so thank everybody for listening to this film not rated, episode 7. Uh, you can follow us and the other members of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network at musiccitydrivein.com. I am Eric. You can follow me at High Contrast FLM on Twitter. I'm Curtis. You can follow me at 90sGamer407 on Twitter, also on Twitch by the same handle. And next week, we'll have totals to find out who for sure is losing. Spoilers, it's me. <laughs> <laughs>